We're in Revelation chapter 16, part 2. We've been looking at the seven bold judgments. Here's what you get in the book of Revelation. God's judgment on the planet. And it's broken up into three pieces. The first piece are the seven seal judgments. By seals, I don't mean what you see at SeaWorld. Every time we use that word seal, that's all we think of. Because we don't seal documents like they used to. But Jesus was handed a scroll up in heaven. And each time he cracked open one of those seals, judgment would pour out on the planet. Seven seals. And then we saw in the book of Revelation, seven trumpets. And when one angel would blow a trumpet, judgment would pour out on the earth. And there were seven trumpets. The last set of seven are bowls. Uh, Some versions say vials. The, The angel pours out the bowl on the planet seven times, seven judgments. So we are in the last seven. We've been looking at the bowls. And last week we looked at five of the seven. So today is the last two bowls. Um, And as Revelation chapter 15, verse 1 says, in these judgments, in them, the wrath of God is complete. And for those of you who weren't here last week, I pointed out that many of these last judgments tie directly to the plagues of Egypt to show us the parallels. In fact, three times these are called plagues, and those five really lined up well. These last two, not so much. Nevertheless, that's where we're at. We're in Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. The Euphrates River is one of the most famous famous rivers in the world. It's been mentioned since the dawn of time because humanity comes from that part of the world. And you read about it throughout the Bible. You read about it in ancient documents. It's a significant military barrier to cross if you're attacking the other side, or to protect you if you're on the other side. Find it interesting that it's going to dry up. I wanted to know exactly how big it was and where it was. So I went online and I found several maps, and I learned that the Euphrates River is in Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Big river. And then that passage of scripture says it was going to dry up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. So that military barrier is going to be gone. The kings can go right through the They could just march right through. And I wonder, who are the kings of the east? And look what I found. What you see here is the Euphrates River. It's the Tigris and the Euphrates. All this red around the Euphrates River is ISIS the terrorists that are taking over the Middle East right now and killing everybody who disagrees with them. And a lot of people who agree with them, too, because they just like killing people. So the Euphrates River is going to dry up to make a way for the kings of the East. Nobody knows who the kings of the East are, but I found it interesting that here we are, many of us think we're at the edge of the end times, ready to just go headlong into them, and ISIS is arising, and they're hanging out around the Euphrates River. I just found that interesting. Some of this I've shared with you in the past because we looked at this several weeks ago. So I'm going to review some of what we looked at and then we'll get back into the chapter we're in. I told you that some people think the kings of the east are China because they're east and north of there. And shortly we're going to see how many soldiers there are and they say, well, that can only be China. Others say, no, it's India because India is almost as big as China population-wise. It's probably India because they're east. We don't know. We know it's not us we're not from the east. But it could be any group of people east of Israel. 
the kings of the east. Because Israel is like the geographical center of what the Bible talks about. So if it says east without explaining it, it's east of Israel. All right. To look at this whole Euphrates River thing, we got to go back to chapter 9. Let me take you there, briefly summarize where we've been, and then back to 16 again. The sixth angel sounded, so now we're at the sixth trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. So John is telling us in the book of Revelation that the Euphrates River is going to dry up. An army of 200 million people are going to sweep through the area and a third of humanity will be destroyed by this army. Dang. A third. Wow. You know, there's over a billion people in China right now and over a billion people in India right now. Together, they've got about three billion people. That means just between them, a billion gone. These numbers are overwhelming and staggering. And I shared this with you a few weeks ago, but for those of you who weren't here, this headline really caught my attention. Here's what it says. A new Turkish aggression against Syria. Ankara suspends pumping Euphrates water. Remember, three nations the Euphrates run through. These are two of them. Here's what the article said. Translated from Arabic from May 30th of last year. So this is a year ago. The Turkish government recently cut off the flow of the Euphrates River, threatening primarily Syria, but also Iraq, with a major water crisis. Al-Akbar found out that the water level to Lake Assad has dropped by about six meters, leaving millions of Syrians without drinking water. It's always known in history that if you cut off somebody's water supply, it's an act of war. If you cut off their trade route, it's an act of war. So we've got the Euphrates River drying up. The kings of the east are around, or ISIS is around the Euphrates. And it says a third of mankind is going to be destroyed by the kings of the east. I don't know. It seems to me that the stage is being set. This seems to be something that could happen tomorrow. I don't know. Revelation 9.16. Back to that. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. Can you... Just try to picture that number in your head. It doesn't even come close to it. During World War II, the United States assembled the biggest military force in known human history. Everybody says in human history, but what do we know? But from all the records we have, this is the biggest military force in human history, 12 million people. This doesn't just include the people, boots on the ground. This is people supporting them you know, to, to get a number that big. So the army portion wasn't even that big. Let's say it was 8 million or 6 million. This army is going to be 200 million. And as I said, it says they come from the east. China has 1.3 billion people. They can field an army of 200 million men. No problem. If I did my math right, and that's always a question... 200 million is 15% of a billion, 0.3. So no problem. 15% of your people, 
forming an army? Hey, they could do it several times over. India is the same. They're about the same size. They could do the same. The United States of America, we're about 319 million people. We couldn't even come close to matching a military that size. If we got all the old men and all the old ladies and all the toddlers in the army, we still wouldn't even be a drop in the bucket compared to them. This is a massive fighting force. Everybody says it's got to be China or India because they're the only people big enough to field an army that big. But notice it said the kings of the east, not the king of the east. Usually, kings are over an area. One king, one area. So this is probably a confederacy of nations, not just one nation with 200 million soldiers in it. A couple of possibilities. Um, this whole thing of 200 million horsemen, it could be symbolic. You know, there's a lot of symbolic things that happen in heaven and they're mirrored on earth. And there's things happening in the spiritual realm that John can see in the vision that may not have a direct physical application. That's possible. It's not my belief, but it is possible. What I think is this has to do with modern mechanized warfare, these 200 million horses. Now, why would I say that? Because here's what it says about these horses. I'm reading from chapter 9, verse 17. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Real horses do not spit out fire, smoke, and brimstone. So these are obviously not literal horses. So they're symbolic. But symbolic of what? Symbolic of something in the spiritual realm? Possibly. They could also be symbolic of modern mechanized warfare. I can imagine John seeing a guy sitting on a tank, the tank shooting its big weapon, fire belching out of its mouth. He's sitting on it, it's his horse, and fire and brimstone's coming out of its mouth. I could see that. That makes sense to me. But that doesn't make it so. I'm just giving you some thoughts. I don't know. Nobody knows. Okay, let's go back to chapter 16. Back to what's going on at the last set of bowl judgments. Chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming as a thief, Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. I've been there. There's a mountain in this vast open plain, which is now farmland, because Israel is very mountainous. This is one of the biggest open areas in Israel. And there's a little mountain that King Solomon had a fort on. He wasn't the first and he wasn't the last. Everybody wanted a fort on that mountain. The mountain's called Megiddo because you could overlook the whole plain. And if anybody was going to pass through your territory, they were going to pass through that area and you can go out to meet them. So that's where you wanted your fort. The mountain is called Megiddo. The word for mountain in Hebrew is Har. So it's Har Megiddo. And everybody thinks Har Megiddo is Armageddon. Just, you know, saying it in a different way. I have never heard of an explanation other than that. That seems to be what everybody leans upon. So, when I was up on Mount Carmel, 
That's another place. There's several mountains around this. You can look at the Jezreel Plain. And I was up on Mount Carmel, and I was looking out, and I saw these two lines way off in the distance. And I asked our tour guide, this was the first time I was there, I said, what are those two lines? Because to me, they look like runways for airports. And he said, oh, that's a, that's a military base. That's a, where the Air Force is. I was like, whoa, the Bible's coming alive right before my very eyes. The Bible says the big end-time battle in the world is going to happen right here. And this is where one of Israel's main military bases is. Wow, that's a coincidence. Kind of holy ghost goosebumps. And I took lots of pictures. Unfortunately, I didn't bring it with, you to, with me today. Sorry about that. So these frogs, they jump out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, who we refer to as the unholy trinity. But what, why do these demons look like frogs? What is John seeing in his vision, and what are we supposed to understand from that? Listen, your guess is as good as mine. We know they're demons. It says so. But why does it look like frogs coming out of their mouth? I don't know. Maybe simply a metaphor for the fact that they sprang out of their mouths. Frogs spring. Could be that simple. It could be much more complex. But the problem is the Bible doesn't explain it. A lot of the metaphors in the Bible, the Bible explains. You just read a little further and it tells you what it means. Or in another book of the Bible, it might have used that metaphor and explained it there. But this isn't explained anywhere. And so what a lot of Bible teachers do is they just come up with what sounds good and that becomes their belief. I do not like to do that. That's not, that's not good. But I did consult several other commentaries and just to give your mind something to work on, one of the commentaries said, well, since they're frogs, let's look at frog characteristics. Okay, I guess we can do that. Not certain, but we can explore it. Frogs have a rough, harsh, coarse voice. So maybe these frogs stand for complaining and gossiping and blathering and reproaching people. Augustine said it's, it's a symbol for heretics and false philosophers. That makes sense, but just because it makes sense doesn't make it so. So you can think on it as a possibility, but we don't know for sure. It also said, well, frogs love the mud. They're born in the mud. They live in the mud. They wallow in the mud. That represents us. We're born in sin. We wallow in sin. And people who love the mud, they love to stay in sin. Well, that's a nice symbolism, but again, whatever. Um, frogs live in water, drink water. So it must stand for drunkards. They drink too much. Uh, it's kind of reaching here. Swal frogs swell up. You puff out their cheeks. So it must stand for pride. Makes sense. So these are very proud demons who drink too much. See, it doesn't all work, yeah. I'm not sure what the frogs stand for. I'm going with a spring out of their mouth until I learn better, but I wanted to give you some other people's opinions. So these demons, they gather the nations together for the great battle of Armageddon. Why? What do they have to gain? They're demons. Do they want wealth? Do they, do they, they desire gold? What's the point of this whole thing? Commentators talk about it. Bible scholars talk about it. Why are they doing this? Here's what I think. This is my theory. So take it with a grain of salt. Since the beginning of time, Satan has tried to destroy the Jewish people. The Bible talks about it all the time. Let's throw all the Jewish babies into the Nile River, says Pharaoh. 
Let's wipe out all the Jews, says Haman, book of Esther. Let's wipe out all the Jews, says Hitler. And everybody joined him. They've caused misery, but they have failed every time. Why does Satan want to wipe out the Jewish people? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First and foremost is because he hates anything God likes. God says he loves Israel with an everlasting love. They are the apple of his eye, and he has a special covenant with them. And through this covenant, the Messiah came. So Israel is responsible for Satan's number one enemy. He's got all sorts of reasons to hate Israel, but mostly because he's a hater. And so he uses his pawns to try to destroy Israel. Problem is, God said he would never let all the Jewish people be destroyed. He made a promise. That's why Pharaoh failed. That's why Haman failed. That's why Hitler failed. And that's why the Antichrist will fail. Going to try, but they will fail again. So maybe it's to destroy Israel. I think it is. You know, when Jesus talked about the devil, this is what he said about him. He is a murderer from the beginning. They're going to make war, the biggest war in human history, and make as many dead bodies as they possibly can make. Why? Because they're evil. They're murderers. That's what they do. You know, there's, every once in a while, we'll get a newspaper article or see something on the Internet that says, yeah, this guy killed three women and chopped them up and ate them, and now he's serving, you know, 20 years in prison or whatever. Jeffrey Dahmer, those type of people. Or we hear about these mass shootings. They happen all the time. Sometimes they're just evil terrorists, people who hate America, but sometimes they're just evil people, crazy evil people that just go and kill randomly. Satan loves murder. He loves killing people. He's going to have his heyday here. The Battle of Armageddon. I think it's better called the Campaign of Armageddon because it's going to, when you look at Ezekiel and Daniel and the book of Revelation, it looks like there's many end-time battles that happen and it's just the world's aflame. But the biggest campaign, I think, happens in the Valley of Jezreel right under Armageddon, and that's why it's called the Battle of Armageddon. All right, that was the sixth bowl. Let's finish this off with the seventh bowl, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. When I read the Bible for pleasure, I don't focus in on the details. I want the big picture. Every once in a while, a little piece will grab my attention, and I'll go home and check it out just for fun, because that's how pastors are. <laughs> but when I teach it, I analyze it. It said, this is the greatest earthquake, such a mighty earthquake that had not occurred since men were on the earth. Well, they've had some pretty stinking big earthquakes on this planet. So I did some research. I wanted to see the biggest earthquakes because I know this one's going to be bigger. And if I can know how bad the biggest one was, I know how bad this one will be in retrospect. So there was an earthquake in Pakistan that resulted in a new island being formed. That's the island. This earthquake that popped up an island instantly out of the ocean was 7.7 .7 on the Richter scale. So if you want to know what it takes to make an island, you need an earthquake 7.7 .7 on the Richter scale. There was an earthquake in Nepal 
This one is still the one in Pakistan, just to give you an idea of what it looked like. There's the island. There was an earthquake in Nepal on April 25th of 2015, so just last year, or this year, just a couple months ago, registered 7.8 on the Richter scale. It moved Mount Everest an inch. Now, how they even measure that, I'll never know. <laughs> hey, look, the mountain moved an inch. <laughs> but I trust them. They know what they're talking about. They probably got out there, you know, satellite imagery and Google Maps and figured it all out. So, if you have an earthquake that's one of the biggest, 7.8, it can move a mountain one inch. Okay? You have one 7.7, it can birth an island. According to NBCNews.com, in January 23rd of 1556, an earthquake in China killed 830,000 people. That blows my mind. Because when I think of earthquakes, I think of big buildings falling down filled with people, and that's how all the people die. But if you live in a little grass hut out in the middle of the woods, how do you die? The roof falls on your head, you push it off. It's made out of grass. What's the big deal? So to give you an idea, this earthquake must have been really, really, really bad to kill 800 plus thousand people without buildings falling on them. Wow. Ground opened up and swallowed some of them. Mudslides killed some of them. I'm sure beams fell on some of them. Heart attacks probably killed some of them. Who knows what else happens during these big earthquakes? Let me read to you a little from the article about this earthquake. And we don't know how big it was on the Richter scale because they didn't have the Richter scale back then. Here's what the article says. Damage extended as far away as 270 miles northeast of the epicenter. You know, you travel, you drive. Think of how far that is. With reports as far away as 500 miles. Wow, I don't even know if L.A. is 500 miles from here. So imagine the big one hits L.A., and we feel it here. Wow. Geological effects included ground fissures, uplift, subsidence. That's when whole big portions of land just sink down. Liquefaction and landslides. Imagine that. A hill just all of a sudden turns to liquid because it was shaken so much. And slides down and buries a village. City walls collapsed. Houses collapsed, and many of the towns reported ground fissures and water gushing out. It says in the book of Revelation, there's going to be an earthquake bigger than the world has ever seen. The one in China was felt 500 miles away. How big is this one going to be? Well, the earth is 250,000 miles around. So if it's felt all over the world, and it's going to be, it says, that would make it at least 500 times greater, if I did my math right, than that one in Pakistan. Can't even imagine it. I can't picture something that violent. The planet, you know, I don't think we can call it an earthquake at that point. It's, it's greater than that. We've got to come up with a whole new word for this one event. I came up with a word. I don't know that it's a good one, but I like it because I stole it out of Isaiah. It's an earth shatter, not an earthquake. You know, I'm from California. I've been through lots of earthquakes. No big deal. You know, we deal with earthquakes there like we deal with monsoons here. They come, they go, you, you live with your life. Every once in a while, there's a microburst over your house and you've got to get your roof repaired or your shed blows in your neighbor's yard. It happens. 
California, every once in a while there's a big one and a building breaks. Every once in a while there's a really big one. I've never been through a big one, but I've been through lots of small ones. I was in one when I was in my house. When I went out of the house, somebody told me, did you see the street? It went like this. I said, dang, I missed it. I was inside the house. The house went like this. Well, listen to what Isaiah says. Before we get to him, though, a little more verbiage about this one quake than to Isaiah. It says the great city was divided into three parts. The context would probably make it Babylon. So this city is split into three parts because of this earthquake. Every island fled away. Remember I told you it was going to be felt worldwide? I know it takes a 7.7 to birth an island. What does it take to destroy it? Every island on the planet. And then this one, this one really blows my mind. Because I can figure a giant tsunami wipes out all the planets. I can picture that in my pea brain. This one I cannot picture. The mountains were not found. Revelation 16, 19. All the mountains are gone. The earth is going to shake so much. There will be so much subsidence and plate tectonic shifting that all the mountains are going to go away. It took, a, what was it, a 7.8 or 7.9 to move, move Mount Everest one inch? What's it going to take to destroy every mountain on the planet. And how can anybody live through that? I don't know. I have no idea. I know in the book of Revelation and elsewhere, it says men's hearts will be failing them from fear. People, the way I understand it, will be dropping dead out of fright. I can see why. It's scary just thinking about it. So here's where I got the earth shatter from. Isaiah chapter 24 says, If you are terrified and run, you'll fall into a pit. If you crawl out of the pit, you'll be caught in a trap. The sky has split apart like a window and thrown open. The foundations of the earth have been shaken. The earth is shattered, ripped to pieces. It staggers and shakes like a drunkard or a hut in a windstorm. It's burdened down with sin. The earth will fall never to get up again. That was exciting. Let's pray. No. <laughs> Yow. Dark days are coming. Worst in human history. Second only to the flood of Noah. Isaiah said in this context with the earth shatter, he said this, the sky has split apart like a window thrown open. I don't know what that means. Does that mean... The entire atmosphere rips open and we can see outer space? Maybe. Does that mean God rips the heavens open so we can look straight into heaven and Jesus comes down? Maybe. Is it referring to just some worldwide biblically cataclysmic storm? Maybe. I don't know, but whatever it is, it sounds scary. Now, Isaiah said that. Listen to what the book of Revelation says. Chapter 16, verse 21. Hailstones, weighing about 100 pounds each, fell from the sky on people. Finally, the people cursed God because the hail was so terrible. So I wonder if this hailstorm is tied to the sky ripping open. Could be. But again, did some research. 100-pound hailstone. What's the biggest hailstone that's ever fallen? I've heard of golf, golf ball size. I've heard of baseball size. And I've even heard of grapefruit size. Of course, that doesn't tell me anything because we got some big grapefruit in our state. I've seen grapefruit this size and I've seen grapefruit this size. So I don't know how big those are. 
So I went online, I googled, biggest hailstone ever discovered in America was eight inches across. Circumference was over 18 and a half inches, and it weighed two pounds. So how big would it be to weigh 100 pounds? Dang. When I was last in Texas, the day before I got there, they told me about the hailstorm they just went through. Cracked people's windshields, dented their cars. I felt really bad for the guys who owned car lots. Imagine their entire inventory being ruined in a day. Bigger hail than that breaks car windshield windows. It goes right through the windows. So if it's 100 pounds, I don't think rolling up the window is going to help. I think it'll hit your car and probably flatten it. It'll be like, I don't know, like a bomb going off. You can't hide in your house. Chunks of ice fall through people's houses today. Sometimes they fall off airplanes. Sometimes they don't even know where they came from. No clouds out and a chunk of ice just fell through my roof. It happens. And they're only about this big. Imagine one that's 100 pounds. This is it. God's turning up the heat. This is the last of the last. This is going to destroy all the people he wants destroyed, and this is going to scare to death the people he wants to scare to death. Why in the world would God want to scare people to death? Because if there's anything that's going to get somebody's attention to think about God, it's fright. How many atheists do you know get scared and say, oh, my God? <laughs> you ever heard the saying, there's no such thing as an atheist in the foxhole? Usually when people are encountering death right in their face, they all of a sudden start talking to the God they don't believe in. This is actually, believe it or not, an act of mercy to give these people every possible opportunity to consider God. You know, he was turning up the heat. And all along, I'm sure some people were considering, but most weren't. And now it's, it's full bore. This is the last thing I can do to get your attention. And it'll work, undoubtedly, for some. And I'm sure the hail is going to wipe out many also. See, it's a twofer. Get two birds with one stone. Get some people saved and destroy your enemies all at once. Hey, I wonder if this hail is going to wipe out that big old army that attacks Israel. In the Bible, that's happened before. God has used hail to save Israel. Hmm. Never know. Then Jesus said this, and we're almost done. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Behold, I am coming like a thief. What does that mean? Nobody knows when a thief's going to show up. That's what it means. If you knew, he wouldn't cause you any problems. You'd be ready for him. So Jesus says, when I come, some people will be ready and some people won't. Blessed are those who will be awake. If you're ready for me, you'll be blessed. If you're not waiting for me, if you're not ready for me, it's not going to turn out so good for you. That's the whole thief metaphor. He said, blessed is the one who stays awake. Being awake means being ready. Being awake means being aware, focused, and God-centered. Being awake means you're anticipating his return. When Jesus comes back, some people are going to be very happy. And some people are going to be very petrified. It says people are going to run and bury their heads in holes and caves trying to hide from the return of Jesus because they will be scared to death. The rest of us, we're going to be like, yes, he's here. So my question to you, as I send you home this morning, is are you ready? If Jesus came right now, are you ready? 
If you're not sure, I'd encourage you not to go home unsure. The Bible says, as many as believed in him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. And by belief, the Bible doesn't just mean you acknowledge a fact. I mean, the devils believe in Jesus. He made them. But that doesn't make them believers. A believer is committed to Jesus. They follow him. They obey him. They're for him 100%. They love him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him loves him back will not perish but have everlasting life. In fact, John, who wrote that, also wrote, it's not that we first loved him, it's he first loved us. And as a response to his love, we love him back. So if you want to be ready, if you want to be awake, if you want to be in the side that's happy to see his return and not the side that's upset when he returns, I encourage you to give your life to Christ. Follow him. It'll be the best life you can possibly have on this planet now. And then you've got an afterlife to die for. Pun intended. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for opening up our eyes and showing us the truth about Jesus. But I've got friends that don't believe in him. And I've got other friends who do believe in him but don't want to follow him. And I've got family that doesn't believe in him too. And I know undoubtedly there's people listening to me right now who either don't believe in him or do believe but haven't committed fully to him. Lord, please touch their hearts. Please open their eyes. Please get through their stubbornness that they might know that you give us life and you give it to us more abundantly. That you want to translate us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son of your love. That we might be adopted into his family and be children of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.